0: Please open your Bibles to James, chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James, chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is James 1, 19-21. Let's begin by reading the passage in its context, starting in verse 19 and continuing through verse 27. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that there is no such thing as an atheist. Sure, there are people who claim there is no God. We all know that. You probably know several atheists in that sense. I think there are likely many people who have even managed to convince themselves that they truly believe there is no God. But the Apostle Paul tells us that there's a sense in which there is no such thing as a true atheist. Because God has so evidently revealed Himself through what has been made that everyone at some point or at some level can perceive that there's a God. Romans 1, 18-20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You may have read this passage before and wondered how this works. You may have asked yourself, for instance, how are God's invisible attributes clearly perceived through what has been made? I mean, sure, we can see in the words of Psalm 19 that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can see that God exists through general revelation, but His invisible attributes? That seems to imply that God's character is somehow made known, that such abstract concepts as His faithfulness or His justice or His mercy or His love are made known. How is that made evident in the creation? After all, it's one thing to look up into the heavens and perceive that God exists through what He has made. It's quite another thing to perceive what He is like. We've actually answered part of this question during the past several weeks in James. Back in verse 17, James recalls how the consistency of the seasons points to the goodness and faithfulness of God's character. In like manner, Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew that God's provision for both the good and the evil alike, demonstrates his love and grace. And so we can see that it is possible to know something of the actual character of God through what he has made. But there's another element to this sort of revelation as well. Paul highlights it in Romans 2, verses 14 to 16, when he writes this, he says, for when Gentiles or at that point in time, had not received the kind of special revelation that Israel had. They didn't receive, for instance, the Ten Commandments. And yet, you still find that their societies are structured by these same principles. And the reason, Paul explains, is because they have these principles written on their hearts through the conscience that God has given them. And so the implication is that they're therefore going to be held accountable to God for their disobedience to His eternal law since internally they know what is right and wrong. Of course, they may suppress that truth, they may may try to even create laws that excuse their sin, but internally they know what's right and wrong because God's written it on their hearts. This internal knowledge of right and wrong manifests itself in some pretty interesting ways. I think for me one of the clearest examples of it occurred on the night of May 1st, 2011. I was dozing off to sleep for uh, a while, and my wife was uh, working in the living room on some different things. And then suddenly, she came into the bedroom and she started shaking me, telling me that I needed to get up. You know why? I asked her, "What's what's wrong?" And she told me, "They've killed Bin Laden." And we didn't have a TV at the time, so she and I went and we huddled around the laptop in our living room as new co- news coverage of the event started to pour in. And as we watched, the strangest thing started to happen. News cameras showed crowds of people spontaneously pouring out into the streets, celebrating. It was almost like the whole nation had won the Super Bowl or something. I can still remember the images of this crowd of people gathered outside the White House, just cheering over the fact that Bin Laden had been killed. I also remember being surprised by the open exuberance over his death because of the types of values that we so often see touted in modern society. We're told, for instance, that vengeance is an ancient and barbaric concept and that we've evolved past it as a people. Many people will even reject Christianity on the basis that that the sort of wrath that God expresses against sin is narrow-minded and unloving. They'll actually claim a kind of intellectual and moral superiority over, the, over God and the Scriptures and on the basis that, that they understand the concept of grace better than He does. They'll say things like, you know, no truly good or loving God could ever see fit to consign anyone to an eternity in hell for their sin. But then someone like Osama bin Laden is killed. Again, he doesn't just die. He's hunted down and killed. And they're literally running out into the streets to celebrate his death. The hypocrisy in this sort of response is just undeniable, but so too is the truth that God has set in our hearts. That there is such a thing as evil in this world, and it must be silenced. And not only silenced, but punished. I think one of the articles run in the New York New York Times just a few days later captures the tension the world feels in this scenario beautifully. The the headline simply read Celebrating a death. Ugly maybe, but only human. Our topic for today is anger. And as we saw when we began this topic last week, anger is indeed a very human response. The Times got that part of the headline right. Anger, even vengeful anger, is indeed human. It's very natural to us. And it would appear that the reason goes back to what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 2. After all, anger is simply an emotional response to injustice. Just as we intuitively laugh at a good joke without ever having to think about it, just as we'll cry when we hear something tragic, so also will we get angry When we witness injustice. Anger is this tool that God has given us to motivate us to correct what is wrong in the world. Just as our fear motivates us to preserve our lives, just as our love motivates us to preserve the lives of others, so also has God provided us with anger to motivate us to correct what's wrong with the world. Again, it is indeed a very human emotion. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. After all, if God created man in His image in order to rule over the earth on His behalf, then it makes sense that this would include our visceral response, rejection of injustice. That's a very useful tool for God to put in our emotional toolbox if our purpose is to magnify the glory of God on the earth. The problem, however, is that just like every other aspect of human nature, this natural and even good response to injustice has been horribly corrupted and marred by the presence of indwelling sin. We should get angry at sin. For instance, you should feel disgust when you read about the Harvey Weinsteins of the world leveraging their power for sexual favors. You should be angered. When you hear about the kinds of horrors that David and Louise Turpin made their children endure. If you're not angered by things like rape or child abuse, it means that something's wrong with you, honestly. Because the Bible would say that God is angered at those things, and He created you to share in His likeness, to bear His image before the earth. So if you're not angered by those kinds of things, something is wrong with you. It means your injustice detector is malfunctioning. But then again, if you're not angered by those things, it really shouldn't surprise you because that's simply the result of your indwelling sin. You see, sin distorts our understanding of what is right and wrong. Right and wrong is supposed to be oriented around God. It's not something that stands above God since that would mean it's something that God must submit to and it would therefore make this independent and supreme standard of right and wrong a kind of God unto itself. No, right and wrong is something that emanates from God as an expression of His perfect character. God is ultimate reality, meaning that He is the standard for truth. And this means that good is defined simply by that which is pleasing to God, and evil is defined by that which He finds displeasing. Our sin takes that standard, and rather than orienting it around God and His desires, we orient it around ourselves. And our desires. It's as James says in James 4, 1-3. Again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Where do our conflicts tend to come from? According to James, they come from the fact that we expect the world to orient itself around our desires. And then when it doesn't do that, we get angry. In other words, we define good as that which pleases us, and we define evil as that which displeases us, and then we execute justice according to that system of righteousness. Do you know why you maybe didn't feel outrage when you read about what David and Louise Turpin did to their children? It's because it didn't affect you. You, along with basically everyone else on this planet, live primarily for you. You define right and wrong by your own desires, and since their actions didn't affect you directly, you didn't really register it as a great injustice, at least not at that visceral and emotional level. But if someone cuts in front of you and steals your parking spot at Walmart, watch out. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's different somehow. Now, someone needs to pay. Again, why is that? Why will you burn over the fact that your waitress at your favorite restaurant takes too long and then barely register any emotion at all when you read that the Turpins were starving their 13 children and chaining them to their beds? The answer, my friends, is because of your indwelling sin. Your sin leads you to orient right and wrong around your own desires rather than God's. And so you get angry both at the wrong things and also in the wrong ways. Turns out the Times headline was probably pretty accurate after all, huh? Because our anger is not only very human, but it also tends to be incredibly ugly. I doubt very many people were gathered at the White House that evening celebrating the fact that the righteousness of God was vindicated. No, the reason why they were mad was because Bin Laden hurt us. His act of terror threatened our way of life, right? 9-11 didn't just take the lives of 3,000 people. It threatened our freedom, our, to quote the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness. The celebrations were about us. Today's topic, once again, is anger. And we began last week by discussing the foolishness of sinful anger. It would appear that James readers are enduring a series of injustices both from inside and from outside the church. They're likely suffering some form of persecution, for instance, even more than this. However, they're witnessing the church respond to this injustice with hypocrisy. Uh, Rather than pulling together and practicing the kind of love that we see the church practice early on in the book of Acts, it seems like everyone's just looking out for themselves. The rich in the church aren't taking care of their poor brethren. They're more or less just sending them along uh, with nothing more than a, you know, I'll pray for you, brother. The church leaders, for their part, aren't rebuking the rich for this behavior. Instead, they're coddling them, showing them favor, actually, in other words, it would seem that the pastors then were just as afraid of angering a wealthy donor as they are today. You know, the, the more things change, the more they say the same, right? Well, that's what James readers are witnessing. And they're angered by it all. And they should be. This is wrong. And so they want to see something done about it, but what should they do about it? How should they go about correcting these kinds of wrongs? That's what James is writing about here. James apparently hears about the conflict that's breaking out in the church as a result of the brethren's sins against one another, and so he goes about telling them how to resolve those conflicts. And the first thing he does is warn them about the foolishness of sinful anger. He says in verses 19 to 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, he gives a command explaining how his readers should respond to the injustice and hypocrisy occurring in the church. And he gives the reason for that command in verse 20. He says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, The righteousness of God I explained last week is not a reference to the attribute of personal righteousness which we possess as we practice righteousness, Uh, rather it's a kind of result. The anger of man here is seen as an instrument intended to bring about a particular result and the result in this instance is the changed circumstances that James readers hope to produce as a result of their anger. Again, anger is the emotion that motivates us to correct injustice. James readers are angry. They want to correct a kind of injustice, but theirs is not an anger driven by a concern for God and His glory. It's not the anger of God that they're experiencing, but rather the anger of man. James readers apparently think they can bring about a kind of good result with this sort of anger. And so James begins by warning them, it's not going to work. You're never going to bring about a good result by sowing an evil. It's like we saw back in verses 13 to 15. Our idolatry gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the temptation of sin. It promises joy, but it brings sorrow. It promises freedom, and it ends in enslavement. It promises life, but it brings death. That's what happens when we get sinfully angry. We think, if I just raise my voice... Then people will listen to me. The only problem is that when other people see your sinful desires expressed by your anger, their anger is aroused by your sin or by your interference with their idols, and then they get angry and the whole situation escalates. It's like it says in Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sinful anger doesn't improve the situation, it only makes it worse. And that's what James is warning about here. He's telling his readers, your sinful anger isn't going to ease the tension in the church, it's only going to escalate it. So don't be deceived. Know this, he says, know this. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This morning we're now going to get into the command that James issues here, explaining what his readers should do to address the unrighteous actions occurring in the church. There's actually more than one command that James provides here. There's actually two commands. You could even say three if you include the command to know that this is the right way to approach a perceived injustice. These next two commands, however, explain specifically what we should do when confronting an apparent injustice. The first command occurs in verse 19, but I wanted to start with the explanation for the command in verse 20 because I think that this explanation lays the groundwork for just what James is trying to tell us here as well as why he's telling us to do it. And it's especially important as we get into this relationship between the first command in verse 19 and the second that occurs in verse 21. In fact, the second command in verse 21 That's the command that really serves as the foundation for this entire set of instruction. And you're not going to understand what James is driving at there in verse 21 if you don't first understand this principle that unfolds in verse 20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we've covered all of that. Now hopefully that concept should be plain for us and it should clear the path for these next two commands. The principle, once again, is that we cannot produce good out of our evil desires. Our sinful anger is never going to correct injustice. It's only going to exasperate it. Well, if that's the case, then what should we do? What should we do? James issues us two commands. The first command is listen. 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 We find this in verse 19. He says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The basis for this command once again occurs in verse 20. James says we should be this way because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so the implication is that this type of response does produce the righteousness of God. This type of response does produce a good result. The command, of course, is to be. And to be three things specifically, he says, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to anger actually seems to be the summary point of the other two uh, B commands here, quick to hear and slow to speak. And I say that because it's the only one of these three qualities that carries over into verse 20 when James explains his command by saying, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, overall, James seems to be telling his readers they need to be slow to anger and the instruction to be quick to hear and slow to speak are informing what he means by this command. This command to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If you stop to think about it, it can almost sound a little perplexing. After all, if you consider what what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 26-27, he seems to say the exact opposite thing. There he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There Paul seems to be stressing a kind of urgency in the face of anger. Here James is saying to take it slow. That appears to be almost a kind of contradiction. But I think it's an apparent contradiction and it's cleared up when we consider that Paul seems to be urging his readers to bring a resolution to their conflict quickly. That's the sort of admonition that James would get behind. His point is merely that the approach his readers are taking is not going to actually resolve the conflict. The reason being they're responding to the conflict with sin. Again, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. They're sinning in their anger, and James is recognizing that their kind of anger isn't going to improve the situation. It's only going to make it worse. Thus, it would seem that the issue James is trying to address when he says be slow to anger is this immediate, almost knee-jerk response that we tend to have when we're wronged. Again, anger has been programmed into our spiritual DNA. But thanks to our sin, there's a bug in the programming. The software isn't running the way it's supposed to anymore. Well, that instinctive sort of response is still incredibly powerful. It's so strong that on two different occasions, Proverbs actually compares the one who can control that response to a general who captures a city. And Proverbs 16.32 says, "...whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Now, there in that passage, the focus is our anger and the effort it takes to exercise self-restraint when we're angry. In Proverbs eighteen nineteen, the source of anger is flipped. It's placed outside of us onto someone that we've offended, and it says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. The idea is that once the, the volcano has blown its top, there's really no stopping it. There's no manhole cover big enough or strong enough to restrain that kind of force. And that's a problem because, again, most of the time our anger is not justified. It's driven by selfish desires. And once again, that, once that sinful anger spills out, it's going to cause the other person to get angry at our anger and the whole situation is going to deteriorate further. That's what James is trying to stop. And so while both James and Paul would agree that conflicts need to be resolved quickly, what James is concerned about is this automatic response which stems from our sinful anger and only serves to exasperate the conflict rather than slow it down and resolve it. This is why he says, Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, if sinful, if sinful anger isn't going to resolve the conflict, then what will? We see the answer given in the other two things that James readers are to be, which is quick to hear and slow to speak. And once again, that's not slow to speak in the sense that James readers are to simply let sin go unanswered. We talked about this last week. Some people respond to injustice with what God call, descri- I'm sorry, with what the Greek describes as thumos. It's what we might characterize as wrath or fury. The person just blows their top. That's obviously not helpful. Again, a harsh word stirs up anger. But on the other hand, neither is it helpful just to quietly stew and to plot revenge. That's what the Greek tends to call orge, and it refers to an abiding anger. Thumos burns hot and quick, orge abides. That's how some people deal with conflict. They just ignore it and seethe. They shut down and refuse to talk about what's bothering them. That's also not helpful because it allows the conflict to remain. In fact, as I said last week, this is often the more damaging type of anger precisely because the other person may not even understand that there is a conflict to resolve, and so it just goes unanswered because it's never brought up. This is why Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. and Give no opportunity to the devil. It's because unresolved anger provides an opportunity for division, and that's not good. So he says, take care of your anger. Speak about what's bothering you quickly. So James isn't contradicting that concept when he says, be slow to speak. Rather, the idea that he's trying to communicate is to work hard at listening as well. The two ideas really need to be read together. It's be slow to speak and be quick to hear. The point is, the point that he's trying to get across is to listen. Far too often, our first response when we get angry is to start revealing our own thoughts about all the things that make us unhappy without ever taking a moment to pause and consider the situation from the other person's point of view. We'll even refer to our anger in this sense. We'll say, for instance... I'm going to give this person a piece of my mind. Right? Clearly, when we're thinking that way, we're not really interested in their side of the story. We just want our frustration to be known. And that's because, again, we're not really concerned about the other person's desires when we're sinfully angry. We're just concerned about our own desires. So, what would be the point of listening, right? What's that going to achieve? What they think and feel has nothing to do with my concerns. And that's true so far as it concerns sinful anger. But as it relates to actually resolving conflicts, listening is actually incredibly helpful. How is it helpful? Well, briefly, very briefly here, here are four ways. Number one, listening is probably the surest way of restraining your own anger. Once again, listening restrains your own anger. So like I said just a moment ago, anger can be very hard to control. The Proverbs compares it to conquering a city. Well, if that's the case, then how can you possibly control it? One of the ways is by taking away the fuel that causes it to burn. And that happens through listening. A lot of times the reason why we think someone's actions are unjust is because we don't understand the full context for them. When we listen, though, we see their actions from their perspective. And once we do that, we often realize they weren't meaning to harm us with what they were doing. Because, believe it or not, the universe does not revolve around you. And so, actually, a lot of times people aren't even thinking of you when they do stuff to anger you. Most of the times, honestly, they're just thinking about themselves, too. And honestly, once we see that, once we see that their actions weren't intended to harm us, it can cause our anger to die down a little even when we are acting selfishly. I saw this principle at work in my own life firsthand this week. This past Thursday, I was out on a bike ride with my sons, and as we were going down this one hill, I see Daniel start dragging his feet, like dragging the top of his shoes along the ground, trying to stop his bike with the top of his shoes as we come up on the stop sign. And immediately I thought of how he was wrecking his shoes when he was doing that, and I got angry. I didn't get real angry, but I got angry. And I said to Daniel in a harsh tone, Daniel, why are you doing that? All it's going to do is wreck your shoes. I gave him a harsh word, apparently thinking that that would somehow prevent him from doing it the next time. And do you know what what Daniel told me? He said, sorry, Dad, I didn't have any other way to stop. You see, the the chain had come off of his bike and there was no other way that he could stop going downhill than by dragging his shoes. This poor guy was just trying to keep from blowing through a stop sign, right? which I told him to do, so he was actually trying to obey me and I rebuked him for it before ever taking the time to figure out why he was dragging his shoes. Needless to say, once I understood that, I wasn't angry anymore because Daniel hadn't done anything wrong. My injustice detector was immediately flipped off once I understood that no injustice had actually taken place. That's the power of listening. It can restrain your anger. Number two, listening provides the best path to actually resolving the potential injustice. Once again, it provides the best path to resolving the conflict. This is is related to the first way that listening helps us. After all, what listening does is inform us of what the conflict is actually about. Sometimes we don't understand that. Again, we make assumptions right off the bat, and then we start in trying to resolve the conflict based off of what our assumptions are by speaking our mind. When a lot of times we later find out that our assumptions were completely wrong. You take the example I I just gave you with my son Daniel. I assumed that the problem was that my son didn't appreciate the value of the shoes I had bought him. And so I immediately set out to correct that by scolding Daniel. And it turns out the problem was actually a loose bike chain. Well, that requires a very different solution, right? This is what listening does. When we start... Asking people, why did you do that? We come to discover that they too have concerns that they want addressed, and very often there's a way that we can work together to make sure both of our concerns are taken care of. Number three, when the other person is in the wrong, and sometimes they are in the wrong, sometimes they are in sin, it isn't just a misunderstanding. When the other person is in the wrong, then listening provides the surest way of winning their ear and bringing them to repentance. Once again, listening encourages repentance. Again, it's as the Proverbs says in chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And just a few verses later, it says in verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger... Quiets contention. Quite simply, it's hard to get angry at people who are kind and patient and who take the time to really listen to you and to consider the things that you care about. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Commenting on the meaning of this passage, John MacArthur says, the, the phrase, heap burning coals upon his head, referred to an ancient Egyptian custom. When a person wanted to demonstrate public contrition, he would carry uh, on his head a pan of burning coals to represent the burning pain of his shame and guilt. The point here is that when we love our enemy and genuinely seek to meet his needs, we shame him for his hatred. Now, of course, the, the point here isn't simply to shame them, like sometimes people will actually act nice to make other people feel guilty. Uh, That's not what Paul is going for. Uh, Rather, the idea is to convict them of their sin, right, in treating you wrongly in order to bring them to repentance. Kindness can do that. Gentleness convicts. This is why men like Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. advocated the use of nonviolent civil disobedience. It wasn't just because they knew it was right. It was because they understood that it worked When the average person sees a picture of a German shepherd tearing into someone who refuses to fight back, that anger instinct kicks in once again. They see someone who is peaceful being attacked by someone who is violent without provocation, and that appears unjust, and they say, this needs to stop. That's wrong. Friends, that's how you turn anger on its head. If anger is driven by a perceived injustice, then the way you confront someone without escalating the conflict is by doing it in gentleness. In that scenario, it's hard for the other person to get angry at your your rebuke, or if they're already angry, they'll quickly repent of it, because to be angry at someone who is so loving and kind would in and of itself act as a kind of injustice. In other words, you're using their own sense of right and wrong to provoke them to listen to your rebuke rather than to lash out. Take my son Daniel one more time. I was in the wrong when I scolded him. But if he had had answered by saying, Hey, get off my back, Dad. My bike chain fell off. Come on, use your eyes for once. What do you think my response would have been? (laughs) Do you think I would have cared at that point that his bike chain fell off? Absolutely not, because as my son, he's not to speak to me that way. God commands him to respect my authority. So in that case, he would have given me just cause for my anger if he had answered my rebuke with a harsh word, and the whole thing would have escalated. But that's not what happened. Instead, he said, Sorry, Dad. There wasn't any other way for me to stop. Like he actually apologized to me for doing the only thing that could have kept him from blowing through the stop sign. So how big do you think I felt in that moment, right? I felt like a total jerk. That's the power of the gentle answer. Daniel's gracious and kind response was the most convicting thing he could have said in that moment. He didn't even mean to, but he rebuked me with his apology. It cut me right to the heart and I went away thinking to myself, you know what, I need to watch my tongue the next time I try to scold Daniel. I need to figure out what's going on first. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And that's what listening first and speaking second is. It's a gentle answer. Number four. And most significantly, most significantly, By listening, you may discover that you're the one in error and repent. You understand listening may fix the situation by fixing you. I mean, have you ever had an argument turn on you? (laughs) Like, have you ever tried to give a piece of your mind to your spouse because of something that made you angry, only to discover that by the end of the argument, you were the one that needed to apologize? Listen, I've more or less stopped trying to pick a fight with Emily because that's usually how it ends up. You know, when I'm hot, it's usually because I'm sinning. I'm the one that's in the wrong. And so if I start to speak my mind, the only thing that's going to end up happening is I'm going to have to end up seeking forgiveness for my sin. So best just to stop, think, and do the repenting privately before getting into that whole mess, right? Just cleaner. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not the only one. Right In that situation, that's just the facts. The facts are that our anger is often wrong. We're angry at a perceived injustice, and that's all it is, a perceived injustice. Not an actual one. <laughs> Again, most of the time, the reason why we're angry is because we want the universe to revolve around us. And that's not right. That's not just. Oh, When we take the time to ask questions and listen well, then that all gets exposed before the conflict ever happens. And I think this is really the point of this passage, and this bears itself out in the second command in verse 21, which is to receive. Receive. James says first, listen, and then he says, receive. After explaining the reason why we should listen is because of the anger of man, sinful Selfish, self-centered anger does not produce the righteousness of God. James says, verse 21, "...therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." The word, therefore, here indicates that this is a concluding thought. So, like, because these things in verse 19 to 20 are so... Therefore, James is bringing us to the next thought in the sequence, and he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, The terminology is key here. I don't know if you remember this, but back when we were in verse 18, I said that what James says there is going to set the context for the entirety of our discussion through verse 27. Verse 27. Well, if you recall, what he said there was this, starting in verse 16 and continuing through verse 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." You'll remember James issues this statement as an answer to those who are attempting to say that God is using trials to make them sin. And what he's saying is that on the contrary, God is good, that He only desires good, and so can therefore only give good gifts. And the implication is that the trials are actually meant to sanctify the believer. So God isn't trying to produce sin through the trials. Actually, it's the exact opposite of that. He's meaning to use the trials to produce righteousness. This is made clear when James says in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You'll remember James employs the same birth terminology that we saw back in verses 13 to 15 when he says that um, our desires give birth to sin and sin brings forth death. Only this time in verse 18 he applies it to God's desires and how through his will he brought us forth By the word of truth. The word of truth here, I explained, is a reference to the gospel. And James appears to be alluding to the act of regeneration when upon hearing the gospel, we believed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, speaking of God's gift of salvation, which he gives through the act of spiritual regeneration, which Jesus calls being born again. James says that God brought us about through this word, this gospel, quote, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, the first fruits of the harvest, I explained in the, in the Old Testament, that was the portion of the harvest that was dedicated to God. And that seems to be James' point, verse 18, as well, that God gave birth to us so that we might serve him. The big idea is that this is why God is bringing trials. Into the lives of James readers. Again, it isn't to make them sin, it's to sanctify them. And if you remember, I said that the way this works is by first revealing and then attacking our idols. That's what trials do. Very often. The fact of the matter is that the reason why trials are so often very difficult is because of our sin. The trials threaten some idol that we love, and then it forces us to choose who we will serve Christ or sin. That's actually the benefit of trials. They teach us how to live by faith in Christ alone. Well, keep all of that in mind. And then listen one more time to what James says here. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The words put away, by the way, it's probably more like putting away. It's not a command that James is issuing here, but more of an assumption. It's more like having put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I mean, now can you start to see the connection here with verse 18, this phrase, the implanted word. That's a reference to the word of truth that we saw back in verse 18. It's a reference to the gospel, which God has caused to take root in the heart of believers. The idea of having put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness is a reference to this idea that when God implanted the word, this word in believers' hearts, He called them out of the world to serve Him. Past tense, right? He called them out. They are now to serve Him. And so it seemed that the picture that James is presenting here, as, we, as he talks about anger and conflicts and the things that these believers are facing in the church, The picture that James is presenting here is that of a choice. They can either choose to follow their old way of life or they can live according to the new life that God has implanted in them. And the reason why James urges them to receive the implanted word, meaning that there's this passive element to this and to do this in meekness or gentleness or humility is because just like with trials... God is using these conflicts in order to sanctify the desires of His people. This word meekness, it connects back to the qualities that James prescribes back in verse 19. To be quick to hear, slow to speak in the face of conflict. That's acting in meekness, in gentleness, in humility. Humility. So James says, Be slow to anger, for the anger of man, sinful anger, doesn't produce a good result. And then he says, Therefore, in meekness, receive the implanted word. And the idea is that it's not just their brothers that they're resisting when they get sinfully angry, but actually the work of God Himself. Taking the discussion back to what James has explained in verses 13 to 18, the believer is caught between two different sets of desires. There are the desires of their sinful flesh on the one hand, and then there are the desires of God on the other. The desires of their flesh are expressed in their anger. The desires of God are expressed in the correction they receive when they slow their tongue, ask questions, listen, and then have their relationships restored as they repent of their sin. James reminds his readers that their sin cannot produce a good result. The anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God. And then on the basis of that, he urges them, so in meekness, receive the implanted word. And then he encourages them one more time to embrace this word by reminding them them that it is, quote, able to save your souls. That seems to be a reference once again to the power of the gospel. James is leveraging his readers' belief in the gospel as a way of reminding them that in this correction, in God's attack of their idolatry, he's only going to give them good gifts. There's nothing of value that he's taking from them. So, what are they going to choose? It's like what we saw back in verses 13 to 15. They do have the responsibility to choose. So what's their choice going to be? Is it going to be the anger of man? Are they going to keep their idols and get angry? Which is only going to intensify their suffering. Or will they choose repentance? Will they turn from their idolatry, which will result in the blessing and righteousness, the blessing that comes from the righteousness of God? You know, it's possible to want the right things, but to want them for the wrong reasons. Just like when people celebrated the death of Bin Laden, not for his offenses against God, but because of how his evil threatened their desires. So also is it possible to want something like obedience from your children, or a good relationship with your spouse, or control over your finances, or time in the Word, And to want these things for entirely the wrong reasons. And the way that this will manifest itself is through sinful anger. That's what James readers are wrestling with. They want good things. I mean, it's good to desire unity in the church. It's good to desire holiness in the church. It's good to desire freedom from persecution. But they apparently want all those things for the wrong reasons, and that's revealing itself through their sinful anger. And this is why after telling them the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James says, therefore with meekness receive the implanted word. It's not just the expressions of of anger that we have to put away, but the causes for it. This is why I encourage you at the end of last week's message to ask yourself, when am I angry? And then then identify in those moments, how does this anger express my lack of love for this other person. It's because overcoming anger isn't simply a matter of overcoming the external expressions of your anger. It starts rather with the internal repentance of the heart whereby you put away your selfishness and idolatry and put on the mind of Christ. Anger starts on the inside. And so God will therefore even use the actions of sinful people in order to arouse and expose those idolatrous desires. What James readers have to choose is, will I dig in and fight for my idols, or will I receive the implanted word and repent? And that's the same decision that you're probably going to have to make the next time you're angry. Anger, again, is a very natural and human response but our sin has also made it incredibly ugly. If you stop to think about it, I think you'd realize that most of the things that make you angry aren't actual injustices. You just have an idol. Well, God will use even the actions of sinful people to expose and attack those idols. For instance, sometimes I'll get mad at my kids for doing something that will disrupt my day. Often my kids are in sin when they do that, like it's often a result of direct disobedience or sometimes carelessness or something like that. But the truth is, that's not what angers me. My anger has nothing to do with their relationship with God. It only has to do with the fact that like, I have work to do, and I think that I need to do it well, because if I don't, then people won't think well of me. I feel this, this pressure to perform, and my kids manage to amplify that pressure through their disobedience. That's just sin on my part. I'm angry because I fear man, and I need to repent in that situation. I'd venture to say it's the same with you. Most of the time, if you stop to think about it, you'd probably realize that it's the same with you. Most of the time, your anger is arising because of your sin. Even when, even when someone sins against you, the reason you get angry is still because of your sin. And so when someone sins against you, and, and in their sin they manage to reveal one of your idols, you have a choice that you have to make. Are you going to dig in and fight for your idols? Or will you with meekness receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul? You can try to dig in and fight, but guys, I have news for you. It's not going to get you anywhere. You may think that you can find happiness in fighting for your sin, but not only will your idols prove vain, but more than likely you won't even get to obtain them through your anger. Because believe it or not, the world doesn't revolve around you, so don't expect everyone else to fall in line and be complicit with your sin. Rather than dig in and fight for your idols, far better it is to repent of your idolatry and receive the blessing that comes with obedience. It's like I've explained several times over the past few months, obedience isn't just simply right. It's also incredibly wise. And so when God corrects us, when He attacks the idols that provoke our anger, He isn't meaning to hurt us, He's meaning to heal us. The sting of rebuke that comes with correction is very bitter, but the fruit of it is very sweet. So I'd encourage you, the next time you're angry, don't rush to reveal your mind. Instead, be quick to hear and slow to speak, and with meekness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's pray.